Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Welcome to the show. This is Joshua Nicholson. Today is episode 14, Small Business Cybersecurity. In particular, we're going to focus on ransomware. We want to be able to really dive into that, see what it takes to identify and respond to these types of attacks. We're also going to review some best practices, some guidelines, and some checklists that are out there. In particular, the CISA's guideline on ransomware. I really plan on diving into each of those points, not just giving you what the checklist says, but actually giving you real-world contextualization towards it. But before that, I want to highlight what's going on this week in the news. So this week, we'll be out at RSA. I'll be out there with the rest of the senior management team at Deep Seas. We're really excited about this conference, a couple good sessions that will be out there. There's one on misinformation and is the new malware. There's another presentation on how to create a breach deterrent culture of cybersecurity from the board down. Another one I was interested in is architecture security for regulated workloads in a hybrid cloud. Then Bruce Schneier, who was a former guest on this podcast, will be speaking at RSA, cybersecurity thinking to reinvent or to reinvent and protect democracy. And then you have hype and reality, how to evaluate AI, ML, in cybersecurity. A lot of focus has been on that lately, a lot of different discussions on how cybersecurity is really going to benefit from machine learning and artificial intelligence, and what are some best practices as you move forward. Brand new field, obviously, and so excited to cover those. On small business ransomware, so... 424% increase just last year on cybersecurity breaches, particular small businesses. 43% of cyber attacks seem to be targeting those small businesses. 66% of small businesses are concerned or extremely concerned about cybersecurity risk. I see that all the time. They rarely know what to do, what controls to implement. What are some of the best practices? 60% of small businesses that are victims of cyber attack go out of business within six months. Unfortunately, they're just not equipped to handle some of those losses. 14% of small businesses rate their ability to mitigate cyber risk attack as highly effective. So not only are small businesses being targeted, only is that a juicy spot for cyber criminals, but they're also the less likely to be able to protect themselves. So one of the things that I wanted to focus on, I wanted to be able to pull up is the CISA guidelines from ransomware. I'm going to share my screen. I want to be able to share what I'm looking at and give some contextualization over it. And I think it's important to understand each of these aspects and how it applies to your business. So give me a second. I'll pull it up. All right. Everyone should be able to see my screen. So here's a ransomware guide. You could go to CISA to see this. And this is a government-provided checklist. Now, normally, I see a lot of government-provided checklists in cybersecurity, and they aren't that good. As I was reviewing material for this show, I really noticed CISA had real good comprehensive approach towards it. So I thought it was a great time to to use them. 
If you look at the guide, there's two real resources. You have ransomware prevention best practices. It's how do you put controls in place in order to handle ransomware in the first place. Then there's a ransomware response checklist. Some of the first things you want to do, like taking your backups up offline and so forth. We go over that. Some of the sharing organizations that are out there, the ISACs, MSISAC, EIISAC, and that has to do with uh, infrastructure information, multi-state information sharing. These are different organizations you can tap in to get more information. Now, the first one is critical to maintain offline backups. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. Cyber criminals compromise a machine. They move laterally. One of the things they want to do is elevate their permissions or access level, grab privileged access accounts, and use those to start destroying backups. Ransomware attacks are only successful if you're not able to restore. So you definitely want to maintain an offline encrypted backups of your data, regularly test those backups, and we include excluding the, the keys for there. You'd hate to try and do a restore and you don't have the keys to actually do the restore. I think that's always very critical. Maintain those regularly updated gold images of critical systems. Let's say you have a server that's part of your core application set. Maybe it's some other systems that are part of your crown jewels. You want to have that gold image or standard build for some of those critical systems. You want to retain backup hardware in systems in the event rebuilding the primary system is not preferred. I've seen that just recently. We had a company who had backups. They had online backups. They're off-site. Off but they had no infrastructure or hardware to reinstall that on. So what good is your backups? You're not able to install it on the primary host anymore because of security concerns. You need to be able to install it on alternate hardware and that not being available. Create a basic and exercise basic incident response plan. I think this is critical. Understand what to do when an attack occurs and who to notify, who to engage is always critically important. And you see these really seem to be immature in small businesses, if exist at all. You want to help your organization better organize around those incident responses, practice them, get bridge numbers up, have call trees, understand who you need to engage at what time. Now, when you look at the attack vector, you want to be able to conduct those regular vulnerability scans to identify and address weaknesses. This seems to be the crux of everything. There's, It's not just fancy or exotic vulnerabilities that are being exploited that cause issues. Nine times out of 10, nine times out of 10, it is a misconfiguration of a critical application or piece of infrastructure that's supporting it. So you definitely want to ensure that you're scanning those. And we, we recommend you do an attack surface reduction program. And what that means is essentially vulnerability management infused with threat intelligence. So you make a more risk-based approach when it comes to patching and remediation. Patching, I can't tell you how critical that is. Zero days, other vulnerabilities in hardware and software come out. You want to be able to patch these quickly and efficiently. However, you do want to be careful and have a standard program for when you're installing patches, when do you do downtime, how do you have a rollback, and so forth. A lot of system availability issues can occur just by patching or doing that in an immature manner. Also want to be able to prioritize those patching, especially for internet-facing systems or things that process internet data. Ensure devices are properly configured and security features are enabled. This goes back to attack surface reduction, ensuring that your operating systems are, have hardening guidelines applied to them, and some of the basic principles such as your Cisco routers, when you deploy routers, there's an admin password. You wanna be able to change the admin password from what is provided as default. 
There's a lot of default passwords in different devices. This allows you to get up and running and install the device in, in, in the beginning. Always need to be able to have those either change or a different authentication mechanism needs to be built on top of that. We want to ensure devices are disabled, ports and protocols that are not being used. Primary example is RDP, and that's TCP port 3389. Now we see attackers use this constantly. Why download a team viewer or some kind of remote desktop software to be able to control different systems if you can just use native tools such as RDP? Employ best practices for RDP and other remote desktop services. So you can see threat actors often gain that initial access to a network through exposed and poorly secured remote devices, and then later they propagate ransomware. And what you'll notice is that there's usually three phases to a ransomware attack. First, you have that initial access where you use Emotet or TrickBot, you gain access to the system, and then you wait a day or two, silence everything, no activity, so logs aren't logs eventually roll off. And then you start downloading other malware in order to move laterally, execute your ransomware, and be able to move from there. You want to audit the network for systems using RDP2 as well, and then close those ports off. You can do that with a port scanner. There's other vulnerability scanners. You can also, the number of different ways to, discur the, to discover that. And you definitely want to shut down services that you're not using. A lot of times, you can use ESXi and connect to the console, and you don't have to have RDP enabled from the network side of it. Now, if you are going to do RDP, and that's part of the application set and support that you need for your infrastructure, then definitely enable MFA, that's multi-factor authentication, and you want to be able to log those RDP attempts. Logging is a primary part of this, and we see frequently either logging is not configured right, the logs are not saved off-site, or it's configured in a manner that easily can be deleted and no logs are kept. They always want to be able to hide and cover their tracks. You want to disable service message block, SMB protocol, outbound, remove or disable outbound or outdated versions of SMB. Threat actors use this to propagate malware across the network. So SMB, we're mapping a network drive, for instance. If you're going to map a network drive to transfer files from one Windows host to another Windows host, it uses SMB protocol. You want to be able to disable older ones like SMB v1 or v2 on your internal network after working to mitigate some of those dependencies. So those older versions have vulnerabilities in them, and you want to be able to mitigate that and turn those off. So removing dependencies through upgrades, configuration, that's you definitely want to move to SMB v3. That's one of the most current versions and allows for signing. And then old, all older versions you want to be able to turn off, uh, especially blocking TCP port 445, TCP port 139, and of course, the ports 137 to 138, which is user datagram protocols. Ransomware infection vector. So phishing, this is the primary vector we're still seeing for intrusions. While we see a lot of misconfigurations on systems, being an initial vector where phishing is still number one. So you definitely want to have a good awareness program. You want to have a good mail filtering gateway to be able to take out and stop a lot of these low-level phishing attacks. And you definitely want to be able to lower the chance of spoofing or modified emails from valid domains. A lot of your gateways support DMARC and so forth. You want to make sure that is configured properly. And this gives some assurance that the message is coming from a validated gateway. 
You want to consider disabling macro scripts for Microsoft Office files. Trap transmitted via email. These macros can be used to deliver ransomware. That happens a lot. You will see macro-enabled Word documents, Excel documents, and so forth. And they'll have malicious content in those macros. Macros, And a lot of times the macros are obfuscated with Base64, two and three levels of obfuscation using Base64. So it really doesn't show on the security scanners. And when you do that encapsulation, base 64 encapsulation two and three times, it's like putting a letter inside of a letter inside of a letter. And the software does not go down to that level to be able to analyze the content. Precursor malware infections. I talked about this a little bit earlier. This is where you ensure you have antivirus, anti-malware software, signatures are up to date. You definitely want to turn on those automatic updates for both solutions and then certainly want to manage what is the detection of that? So it, when it does alert, where are those alerts going to? Who gets notified? And so forth. Ransomware infection by evidence of a previous unresolved network compromise. It happens several times. We see that a lot. Ransomware in infections are the results of existing malware infections, such as TrickPot, Drydex, or Emotet. As I was explaining before, there's a initial access brokers that want to get access into your network. They use a TrickPot, Drydex, or Emotet for that. And then they sell that access off to other cyber criminals who want to execute the ransomware. They have the infrastructure and to be able to get the payments and so forth from it. Use apl application directory whitelisting or allowing on these assets where you only allow authorized software to run. And that unauthorized software is blocked. That seems like a no-brainer, but to be honest, it's a little cumbersome for people to identify, especially in small businesses, all the applications that they use. This would go a long way to ensuring that only trusted applications are run. Attackers want to download tools and install and run those, and those would be blocked because they're not on the whitelist. User directory white <clears throat> allow listing, attempting to list every possible permutation of an application in a network environment. There's some safe defaults. For instance, in Program Files x86 and System32, you want to disallow all other locations unless its ex exception is granted. Consider implementing Intrusion Detection System, an IDS, to detect the command and control activity and potentially malicious network activity that occurs prior to ransomware deployment. So what is that? An Intrusion Detection System is a system that's sitting on a span port. It's a network port that copies or mirrors the traffic of all your traffic that is going outbound to the internet. It mirrors it onto a port in order for it to analyze it and to see what may, be, may have, what may constitute malicious activity, what may not. Now, within those IDSs, there is good coverage for network-based threats like IoT devices, routers, switches, things that don't have antivirus or don't have an EDR solution installed on them. Log4j was a primary example of that you're not going to see log4j attacks unless you have a network-based intrusion detection system. Ransomware infection vector with third parties managed services. We've had a couple of these now where third-party connections have caused infections at companies, especially if their architecture isn't designed right. We want to take in consideration the risk management and cyber hygiene practices of these third parties. So this is where you would do some compliance. This You would have third-party managers who are dealing with the contracts, it's not just what is contractually put in there from a safeguard perspective, but what are some of the technological controls that those third parties are doing. 
You want to understand that adversaries may exploit that trusted relationship. If you have a ransomware attack in one organization, a lot of times we say, if that's one of your trusted third party, you want to first down, shut down email, you want to shut down file transfer and any VPN connections you may have between the two to isolate that third party from causing any infections on your side. These adversaries may target MSPs with the goal of compromising the MSP organization. So be careful when you give MSPs access into your environment, what access that they give, uh, and just be careful. Give enough for them to do their job and nothing more. They also, adversaries use to spoof the identity or compromise email accounts associated with those organizations. So be careful on spoofing just because it comes from a trusted third party. You definitely want to be critical of that. Anything that has to do with a sense of urgency and criticality, saying you must do this now, please click on this link or change this number. There's always some type of hook. If you feel emotionally triggered towards clicking on that or engaging with that message, take a step back and see, hey, is this real? Is this something I should be doing? Because it might just be a phishing attack. So general, bre- general best practices and hardening guidelines. Employ MFA for all services to the extent possible, particularly to webmail, virtual private networks, and accounts that access critical systems. So once again, it's really important to understand where your asset, what your critical assets are, where your crown jewels are, what are your access methods into those crown jewels or outside of the network coming to the inside of your network. And you want to have a multi-factor solution. Now, what is multi-factor? Multi-factor is something you are, something you know, and something you have. Something you know is your password. <clears throat> you log on with your password, your username and password. Obviously, that's not enough. You can have your password stolen. You can have a credential fished out of you. It's not enough to just have that single factor. A second factor can be a biometric, could be a card reader, could be a PKI card, and it also could be something, something else, something. So you'll see some of those challenges questions. You'll also have MFA solutions in which there's a text message that's sent to your phone. You put that text message, it's out of band, it's going to your phone instead of in an email, and that provides that level of protection. You want to be able to use strong passwords too. There's a lot of ga- guidelines out there. You can see here where there's a guideline on CISA, and they want to make sure you enable an Active Directory, do not reuse passwords for multiple accounts, and we want to change default passwords and enforce account lockouts if a specified number of logon attempts. And then password managers can help develop and manage more secure passwords. So what does that mean? It means that when we when attackers start brute forcing passwords, they're trying to gain access to that account. You only get so many guesses, four, five, six, depending on what your settings are, that will allow that many failed logon attempts before the account is disabled, is turned off. You no longer could use that. So that slows down an attacker. Imagine if you can go through a dictionary full of passwords a million times on one account, eventually may get to that password and be able to log on with it. When you have the lockout mechanism, it prevents them from doing that. Now, however, they're also very accustomed to knowing there's a lockout period and they will slowly grind through those passwords. So if they know there's five failed password attempts before the account's locked out, I'm going to do four in that time period before the counter is reset. And I think it's normally 60 seconds or 60 minutes, something to that effect. Could be less than that, depending on your configuration. And then it will lock out the count. You'll need to call the help desk to get that that changed. 
Now, applying the principle of least privilege to all systems and services so that users only have the access they need to perform their jobs. Threat actors often see out-of-privilege accounts to leverage to leverage these out-of-band out accounts to help saturate networks with ransomware. Now, what does that mean, the principle of least privilege? You want to be able to have enough access rights to do your job and nothing more. If you just need access to one server, why would you give someone access to the entire environment, also the ability to change username and passwords for everybody? That access level exceeds what they need to in order to do their job. So you definitely want to adhere to that principle. Restrict user permissions to install and run software applications. This is not something that is common. Normal users should not be installing and removing software. It's part of an IT function. In small businesses, you still may have to do it yourself. You only have a few people there, but you want to be able to put some administration and put some control around that. People are not installing software that, that, that gives you a security weakness within your environment. You want to limit the ability of local administrator account to log in from local interactive sessions. And you want to deny access to the computer from the network and prevent access via RDP sessions. So this is one of the, probably the number one reason for most of these ra ransomware attacks is that people have too much permission on their local desktop. The local administrator, full access to that system, but you can also have your user account put into the administrator group. What happens when you execute malware because you clicked on a phishing email or something to that effect, it executes in your context. If you have administrative rights to that machine, or if you have administrative rights to the domain, you give those access rights to the attacker to use as they see fit. You want to make, definitely restrict that. And we want to remove unnecessary accounts and groups and restrict root access. So if you have service accounts that are very powerful, they have permissions to many different things, but they're no longer being used, you want to be able to restrict that. You want to be able to turn them off. You want to be able to reduce the amount of accounts that could be broken into through brute force, and you can focus on those that, that you really need. You want to control and, lo and limit local administration. This is what we were talking about before. One key best practice I see is you can rename the administrator account. A lot of malware is looking for the name admin or a full administrator. So you can rename that. So a lot of their scripts and everything will fail because that account doesn't exist. You've renamed the administrator account. And you just want to be able to ensure that the username and passwords on one local administrator account on a desktop is not the same as the rest in your desktop. You can use a methodology very similar to a host name underscore than the password. That gives you some kind of difference between the administrator password from one host to another. That's all. That's something we've seen done. And we make use of protected users, Active Directory Group, and Windows and Domains to further secure privileged user accounts against pass-the-hash attacks. In Active Directory, especially Microsoft Windows 2022, they do have this protected user group. So you would want to put your service accounts in there that gets a higher level of protection against those accounts that have the keys to the kingdom. You want to be able to audit user accounts regularly, particular remote monitoring and management accounts that are publicly accessible. This includes audits of third-party access given to MSPs. So you definitely want to be able to go through the logs. You want to see activity. You want to ensure activity is being recorded. And then you want to be able to audit and to see, hey, are, am I still receiving these logs? Are they still being recorded? Is the control still working as it intended? 
Now, we also want to leverage best practices and enable security assessment settings in association with cloud environments, such as Microsoft O365. There's an entire guideline on best practices for hardening your O365 environment. I suggest you go and take a look at it. It's on the CISA's website. You can see a lot of different good. You want to develop and regulate update a comprehensive network diagram that describes systems and data flows within your organization's network. It's useful in a steady state and can help incident responders understand where to focus their efforts. I have been in countless intrusions. I've been an incident commander. I'm a certified incident responder. And I can tell you, this is probably the least kept up with document. Things change on the network before you know it. The network diagram you're having to try and figure out where different connections are, where different IP addresses are coming from is not accurate and it's not available when you need it. So definitely want to concentrate on ensuring that that all that is updated. I think it's also important to have the IP address schemes in that network topology. So not only do you have what's connected to what, but you also had a detailed sheet that shows the actual IP addresses that are assigned to each of the hosts. It's an important to have that comprehensive understanding as well as the third parties. If you have third party IP addresses are coming in, I see a lot of organizations don't record that in their IP address scheme because that happens to be a third party. But when you're in the middle of an incident, knowing where that who owns that address is definitely critical. So employ logical or physical means of network segmentation to separate various business units or department departmental IT resources within your organization, as well as to maintain separate separation between IT and operational technology. This will help to contain the impact of any intrusion affecting your organization and prevent or limit lateral movement on the part of malicious actors. Now, what is lateral movement? So once, once the network is compromised, once you have attackers that have, have compromised your system, they're gonna wanna move, they're gonna wanna move laterally. So they wanna be infect other systems and can get to other systems throughout your network. Now, network segmentation can have, have can help with that. So a lot of times there's what you would call a backblast area. So essentially, if malware detonates in a certain area, you want to keep it contained. But think about network segmentation, very similar to watertight doors on ships. So if you run into an iceberg like the Titanic did, you'd have different compartments that can be sealed to prevent that flooding from going through the entire ship and scuttling the ship. So network segmentation is exactly the same way. You want to be able to segment your servers, for instance, from your workstations. You only want to allow certain ports and protocols. Your desktop is most likely your point of infection, and that's what attackers would use to, to infect your servers, as well as your operational technology systems, which you want to have complete separation. Network segmentation can be used to render ineffective if it's breached through user error or non-adherence to organizational policies. So, for instance, connecting removable storage media or other devices to multiple segments. And you want to ensure your organization has a comprehensive asset management approach. Understand and inventory your organization's IT assets, both logical, which is data and software, and physical, which is hardware. I can't tell you how critical that is. That has occurred so many times where we don't have an up-to-date asset management listing or a CMDB that says what, who owns what, what is connected where, where are your crown jewels, and what's important to focus on. 
You'll understand which data or systems are most critical for health and safety, revenue generation, or other critical services, as well as associated dependencies. So is that a critical asset or is it just a system list? This will aid your organization determining restoration priorities should an incident occur, and you can apply more comprehensive security coils or safeguards to critical assets. Now, this requires an organization-wide coordination. So you may identify in cybersecurity as these assets being critical. You really need the business line to determine what is the criticality to the organization and then be able to apply the proper control based on that context. You definitely want to be able to use the MSISAC hardware and software asset tracking sheet. If you don't have anything like this, you can go to cisecurity.org. They have a good document on that. And I think it's important really to focus on that asset management. That's the critical piece to your cyber defense program. You need to know what it is you have, what's its criticality, and how should I protect that best. And the next guideline here talks about restrict usage of PowerShell and using group policy to specific users on a case-by-case basis. Typically, only those users or administrators who manage the network or Windows operating systems would be permitted to use PowerShell. You want to update PowerShell and enable enhanced logging. Now, PowerShell is a cross-platform command line shell in a scripting language that is a component of Microsoft Word, Windows. Threat actors use PowerShell to deploy ransomware and hide their malicious activities. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times intrusions occurred that way. Walk you through it. User receives a phishing email, looks legitimate, it encourages me to click on it. I click on that. Malware is downloaded onto my machine. It's an initial loader, such as TrickBot, Emotech. They start to download other malicious software from the internet, but the way they execute is they do malicious PowerShell scripts. A lot of times they may use three levels of obfuscation when they do that to trick the security devices that are looking for this. So you definitely want to restrict and pay a lot of attention to how PowerShell is using your environment. Also, it's important just for the version. So you want to update PowerShell instance to version 5.0 or later, and you want to uninstall all earlier versions. Logs from PowerShell prior to version 5 are either non-existent or don't record enough detail to aid in enterprise monitoring and incident response activities. I've seen that where older versions of PowerShell doesn't tell you everything you need, and there's not something you can determine what's going on. So you definitely want to make sure you stay up to date on that. Now, PowerShell logs contain valuable data, including historical OS, registry interactions, and possible tactics, techniques, and procedures of the threat actor's PowerShell user. Now, you hear this term a lot, tactic, technique, and procedures. We call them TTPs. And so what exactly is a TTP? In the criminal world, criminals understand what they're going after, what's their target, what they're trying to steal, whether they're a car thief, whether breaking and entering is their gig, whatever their crime is. There's usually a tactic to it, and they get a system going that it works for them. Attackers are the same way. They may use phishing emails to get initial access. They may be putting Emotet or TrickBot, and they use a certain flavor of ransomware. They will also look lateral using Cobalt Strike or some other technology. And it is a pattern that they use because they've spent a lot of time to get those techniques to work. Now that something is working, they're going to use it. Why try and have advanced exploits and be able to gain access to additional systems if you have a technique that's working, that's that's doing it for you? 
So you want to ensure PowerShell instances use most current version. They have module script block and transcription logging enabled. So you want to enable logging. A lot of that's not turned on by default. The two logs that record PowerShell activity are the PowerShell Windows event log and the PowerShell operational log. Now, SIS is recommending turning on these two event logs with a retention period of 180 days and that these logs should be checked on a regular basis to confirm whether log data has been deleted or logging has been turned off. You want to set the storage size permitted for both logs to as large as possible. Also, in many different environments, you want to be able to syslog that off or send that log out of your environment into some repository. First thing attackers want to do is hide their trails and they delete these logs. What is one of the primary targets of threat actors? Are your domain controllers, your DCs? What are domain controllers? Where they essentially control the operational processes. They have the user account password. That's what they primarily do is authentication. They also use to push out group policy objects and to maintain your Windows Active Directory environment. Now, the, after they're targeted so frequently, what we want to do, we want to ensure that DCs are regularly patched, just like everything else. Higher criticality because of the way it definitely impacts your infrastructure. So you don't want to do all DCs at the same time. You would do a subset in case a patch blows something up, and you can shut that one down, recreate an Active Directory domain controller, and you're not impacted by it. Now you want to ensure the most current version of Windows Server is being used on all the DCs. When you start using different versions and you're going having to support older versions in your DC infrastructure, it definitely causes security protocols to be downgraded in order to communicate with that lower end system. So it says here too as well, security features are better integrated in new versions of Windows servers, including Active Directory security features, Use Active Directory configuration guides, such as those available from Microsoft, when configuring these security features. You want to ensure that no additional software or agents are installed on domain controllers, as these can be leveraged to run arbitrary code. If you have domain controllers that are your primary resources for authentication and access to data within your environment, there's no need to install unnecessary software. You don't use it for any other function. So that shouldn't be your FTP server for something. It shouldn't be somewhere where you're filing, but you're putting files on those systems. It should be used for as a domain controller, and it shouldn't have other software that could be exploited to give an attacker access to that system. So access to those domain controllers should be restricted to the administrators group. Users within this group should be limited and have separate accounts used for day-to-day -day operations with non-administrative permissions. This just happened recently. I was involved in a ransomware attack. A client of ours had LockBit 3.0. The initial vector was one of the sysadmins, one of the network admins, using their the domain administrator account, logging on with that to check his email. So what happens when you're sent a malicious message, you click on that link, that attacker now is able to access and run code as the domain administrator. Best practice is always not to do that, obviously. You want to create administrator accounts. So if you do have a server administrator that needs to have domain admin rights, you would not use his original user ID that he's used, uses to he or she uses to access the internet, to check email. You want to create a separate ID, an A account, as a lot of us call it, that he can use to do those administrative functions, but it's not the same way you, one you would use to check email or surf the internet. You would do a run as 
in order to escalate your permissions in order to do some of these administrative tasks. Domain controller host firewall should be configured to prevent internet access. Usually these systems do not have a valid need for direct internet access. You wanna update servers with internal internet connectivity can be used to pull necessary updates in lieu of allowing internet access for DCs. So what's that saying? Instead of allowing the domain controllers to go out to the internet themselves to patch themselves, you could have a patch management distribution in which you download the patch on another system and you distribute it internally that way. So your domain controllers do not have a, a direct access to the internet. Now, one thing you're going to say is why use host-based firewall? Why can't you just block outbound egress traffic from those domain controllers at the firewall? It's a good question. I actually would do both. But the simple reason why is you see misconfigurations happen all the time. You can have a firewall administrator take those rules off because he's trying to troubleshoot something else, never puts them back on. You can have the host firewall will back that up in the event that the network-based firewall is no longer configured properly. So I would have both enabled. This recommends also the following DC group policy settings. Now, I'm not going to go over all of these, but essentially the Kerberos default protocol is recommended for authentication. But if it is not used, you want to enable NTLM auditing to ensure that only NTLM v2 responses are being sent across the network. Measures should be taken to ensure that LM or land managed hashes and NTLM responses are refused if possible. And those older protocols, that landman hashes or NTLM authentication has vulnerabilities in it, and those are commonly exploited by attackers. That's why you want to ensure if you can't use Kerberos, you want to at least have NTLM version 2. Also enable additional protections for the local security authentication to prevent code injection capable of acquiring credentials from the system. Prior to enabling these protections, you want to run audits against the lsas.exe or lsass.exe program to ensure an understanding of the program that will be affected by enabling of this protection. So LSAS is commonly targeted in order to be able to steal credentials and inject code into it. So you definitely want to harden and lock down the local security authentication. Now, you also want to ensure that SMB signing is required between the host and the domain controller. What this does is prevent the use of replay attacks on the network. And SMB signing should be used to enforce throughout the entire domain as an added protection against these attacks elsewhere in the environment. So it's a replay attack. So essentially, a replay attack is network traffic that's being authenticated that you've recorded that occurred in the past. I can copy that and then sometime period after replay or send it again to the server and still be able to get access to it. So you got to ensure that replay attacks are not permitted. This is something I was talking a little bit earlier to retain secure logs from both your network devices and local hosts. This supports triage or remediation of cybersecurity events. Logs can be analyzed to determine the impact of events and ascertain whether an incident actually has occurred or not. Remember I was telling you earlier, you want to set up a centralized log management platform using a security information and event management tool, or SIM. This enables an organization to correlate logs from both network and host security devices. By reviewing logs from multiple sources, an organization can better triage an individual event and determine its impact to the organization as a whole. One thing to be critical of when you're doing a logging infrastructure and you have a SIM system is to make sure 
you're logging at that local host what you need to. So there's guidelines to say what events that you want to record, which ones you don't. Uh, and then you definitely want to be able to ensure that the logs are sent to an offsite location. This way that you can ensure that they aren't deleted by the threat actor. And as well as you want to ensure your NTP services are up and running from a timing perspective. When you try to correlate logs together, they need to be really close in their timestamps. But if you have some whose clocks are off by three, four or five minutes or in a different time zone, when it comes to pulling that data and having it come together, you can have a number of different issues and miss different events just because the timing is off. You're not able to correlate those properly. And you want to maintain and back up the logs for critical systems for a minimum of one year if possible. That's a good strategy to put your logs away. So many times you ask yourself, would I, when would I ever have to go back six, seven, eight months into logs? Does that even make sense? Does that occur? It actually does. And I can give you examples like, for instance, the solar winds. When solar winds vulnerability hit, we needed to go back into firewall logs six to nine months just to see if activity was occurring. That exact same IOC-based activity that we were seeing was occurring six months prior. How long did the attackers have actually have access into the network? So it is critical to understand what you're logging, how you're logging it, and for how long are you retaining it, and then ensure you have it in a repository that cannot be deleted. Immutable logging or other solutions like that can ensure that you have what you have data that tells you what happened on that host at all times. Now you want to baseline and analyze network activity over a period of months to determine behavioral patterns so that normal legitimate activity can be more easily distinguished from anomalous network activity. An example of that would be normal versus anomalous account activity. This is where we get into, is it normal for this administrator account to be logging onto these servers? Is it normal for this account to be accessing our, my backup system, for instance? Now, Understanding what's trends, what's communicating, and what historically has occurred gives you a great understanding of what's normal, what's not. And that's really, as a cybersecurity professional, the hardest thing part of our job is being able to determine what is normal. Is that a IT system that's ran, running over there? Is that scanning part of patch management? Or is that potentially a malicious actor? A lot of times, there can be a lot of confusion. So we definitely want to have those baselines. Is it normal, for instance, to see secure shell traffic outbound to the internet? I don't know. Maybe that is, maybe that's not. But if you don't have those baselines, it's really hard to tell. One of the things too as well, when you're looking at anomalous traffic is just whether, what's the timing? That may be normal traffic for this administrator to do this during the day. But at three in the morning on a Saturday, not so much. So timing has a lot to do with it as part of trying to find anomalous malicious traffic. Now, business transaction logging, such as logging activity related to specific or critical applications, is another useful source of information for behavioral analytics. So SAP logs, Salesforce, Oracle Financial, you have a number of different applications that run your business. They don't all use Active Directory. In some cases, it may have authentication that's local to them or the activity from what they do in the application, initiate a transaction or delete a record is not gonna be recorded in your domain controller, it's gonna be recorded in the application itself. Now, that could be done in code in the application or they could be using the local logging facilities of that server. But once again, it's activities that normally you don't see in a security context. You need to ensure that you account for those and so forth. 
Now, contacting CISA for these non-cost resources. So I was referencing them earlier. So information sharing with CISA and MSISAC includes bidirectional sharing of best practices and network defense information regarding ransomware, trends, variants, as well as malware. This is a precursor to most ransomware. Now, public-orientated or technical assessments help organizations understand how they can improve their defenses to avoid ransomware infections. Now, you can go to CISA.com and look at forward slash cyber-resourcehub. They seem to have a lot of assessments, including vulnerability scanning and phishing campaign assessments. This is something you can use to start to do your self-evaluations. Cyber exercises evaluate or help develop a cyber incident response plan in the context of a ransomware incident scenario. I've done a number of tabletops with big enterprise, done tabletop exercises with small business. The biggest impact in both different scenarios, but, but, but they both have significant impacts. On the small business side, it's usually less people that are responsible for each of those areas but their skill sets are not up to par on knowing what to do when the attack is actually unfolding. Enterprises usually have a lot more resources or understanding what to do, but they're a lot more complicated and harder to respond in many cases. Having that plan and a plan specific to ransomware incident scenario is crucial. Now, CISA cybersecurity advisors, the CSAs, advise on best practices and connect you with CISA resources to manage those risks. So there's on the screen, you can see several different email addresses for who you can who you can contact in those different scenarios. And also here is some ransomware quick references. What is ransomware? So essentially the attackers learned a while back that the time it takes to steal credentials and then sell steal stolen credentials or stolen data on the dark web takes time. The sales cycle is long for, for that. Now the ransomware is much quicker. They don't have to steal the data. They don't have to export it. They just have to make it inaccessible to you and pretty much impact your business where you're willing to pay to get that data back. So it's much quicker from a profit perspective on that. Now, so part two of this is I wanted to get into the ransomware response checklist. Now, this is very similar to the checklist that we use at Deep Seas for incident response when we go through these different things. But CISA's got a good comprehensive one, so we'll go through this. So detection analysis. First, you want to determine which systems were impacted and immediately isolate them. So each, each environment that you have could have different requirements as far as availability. So you may have a system that's very critical, but if you take it offline, there may be an impact to the organization. So you want to be able to account for that. But if several systems or subnet appear to be impacted, you want to take the network offline at the switch level. It might not be feasible to, to disconnect individual systems during an incident. So what does that mean? You can pull the network cable from the internet. I wouldn't turn off the device. You may need that to pass other packets and to be able to do other incident response. But you do want to contain the network, but the attacker still does not have access to it. Now, if you're taking the network temporarily offline, it's not immediately, I'm sorry, let me start over. If taking the network temporarily offline is not immediately possible, you want to locate the network, which is an Ethernet cable, unplug affected devices from the network, or remove them from Wi-Fi to contain the infection. Now, what is preferred is if you have an EDR product, that's, and you want to be able to use CrowdStrike, FireEye, Defender, there's several of them, products that are out there, 
that are essentially an advanced version of antivirus. So you have antivirus that is analyzing files, ensuring that infected files don't enter the system. The EDR products out there do a lot more. They allow you to respond. They're able to see processes that are running. You're able to see accounts. You're able to see a lot of the things that used to take a responder like me a long time of scripting individual tools in order to be able to gather that information. So it's really good from a response perspective, but also has a great feature which you can contain hosts. So using a CrowdStrike carbon black type protection control, I can do incident response on that host, but I can also click contain and it takes it off of the network, but still gives me access to analyze it, continue my investigation on it. It just can't communicate with anything out on the network. So you've successfully contained that one host. Now, granted, that only works on systems that it's installed and on supported. Some EDR products aren't supported on Linux, definitely not supported on infrastructure devices such as Cisco routers. So there's some limitations to your EDR deployment. Just know that and have some controls to how would I take a Cisco device or some other OT device off network where EDR is not an option. Now, after initial compromise, malicious actors may monitor your organization's activity or communications to understand if their actions have been detected. Be sure to isolate systems in a coordinated manner and use out-of-band communication methods like phone calls or other means to avoid tipping off factors that they have been discovered and that the mitigation activities are being undertaken. Not doing so could cause actors to move laterally to preserve their access, already a common technique, or deploy ransomware widely prior to networks being taken offline. So what it'll do, a lot of times they'll do is that these threat actors will do what's called a man in the mailbox. They'll compromise your mailbox. They'll sit there. They'll see what alerts or messages that the security guys are receiving that are coming in. They can even set mail transport rules where these tools that send you an email that some activity is happening, it gets auto forward before it ever gets to the user's mailbox and gets sent somewhere else. A lot of times to the attackers, there's a, to an attacker mailbox. You definitely don't want to communicate with a compromised mail system while you're in the middle of this. Now, step two will prevent you from maintaining or maintaining ransomware infection artifacts and potential evidence stored in volatile memory. It should be carried out only if it's not possible to temporarily shut down the network or disconnected, disconnect affected hosts from the network using other means. Only in the event you're unable to disconnect devices from the network then you power them down to avoid further spread of the ransomware infection. Now, you want to triage impacted systems for restoration and recovery, identify and prioritize critical systems for restoration, and confirm the nature of data housed on that impacted system. I see a disconnect on that a lot. They may know what that application does or those systems do, but they don't know what data is actually resonant, nor what is the classification of that data, which could be very important if there's a breach of confidentiality, any regulated environment, and you have to report it. Much better, you don't have to report there's been a breach of confidential data if there, that data was not there, but you didn't know and you had to take the worst case scenario. Now, prioritize restoration and recovery based on predefined critical asset lists that includes information systems critical for the health, for health and safety, revenue generation, or other critical services, as well as systems that depend on it. So a lot of times in a restoration perspective, there's infrastructure pieces that need to be up and running. Active Directory needs to be up and running. You have to have server infrastructure, network infrastructure, and so forth. 
So when you're thinking about your restoration plan, I think it's very important to understand what goes first. You can't start installing base systems and applications that rely on Active Directory if Active Directory is not there. So there is a precedence that you want to consider when coming up and doing those restore activities. You also, in the middle of attack, want to ensure you have containment first before trying to restall data in the middle of that. I saw that at a customer as well, as you had one team was working for the network containment perspective. The other team was the sysadmins trying to restore the data. Network was not contained. We still had the threat actor there. Re reinstallation of data and restoration of data made it an absolute mess. We lost logs. You didn't know what was where. So containment must occur first. You must have a lockdown network before going for restoration. Now, your sysadmins can do those backups. They can get ready to have it installed on infrastructure. But at the same time, you don't have to, you don't have to cover too much of them. And then using contact information is really important. A lot of times, who to get in touch with at what time, who are your critical vendors, who do you need to reach out to is definitely one of those pieces where it's important to, to get those into your checklist. You want to confirm with your team to develop and document the understanding of which just occurred to the initial analysis. You want to use that contact information below to engage your internal external teams. You want to share the information you have at your disposal, receive the most timely and relevant assistance, and you would keep management and senior leaders informed via regular updates to the situation. You definitely want to take a system image and memory capture of a sample of affected devices. Uh, additionally, collect any relevant logs as well as samples of any precursor malware binaries and associated observables or indicators of compromise. You want to take care to preserve evidence that is highly volatile in nature or limited in retention to prevent loss or tampering at system memory, system security events, and firewall log buffers. Consult federal law enforcement regarding possible decryptors available as security researchers have already broken the encryption algorithm from some of these ransomware variants. You definitely can research these trusted guidelines from different ISACs, which we talked about before. We definitely want to kill or disable the execution of known ransomware binaries. We want to identify the systems and accounts involved in the initial breach. This includes those mail addresses. Based on the breach or compromise detailed above, contain any associated systems that may be used for further or continued unauthorized access. Breaches often include mass credential exfiltration and securing the network and other information source from continued credential-based unauthorized access may include some of the following. You have to disable virtual private networks, remote access servers, single sign-on resources, and cloud-based or other public-facing assets. One thing is to realize it's not just your on-prem, but you also have cloud ass assets that you need to ensure the security of. Server-side data encryption for quick identification steps. So in the event you learn that server-side data is being encrypted by an infected workstation, you want to do some quick remediation steps. You want to review your sessions, open files. You want to be able to shut off those open sessions that you have. Review file properties of encrypted files or ransom notes to identify specific users that may be associated with that ownership. That will indicate what account the attackers are using. You want to view the Terminal Services Remote Connection Manager event log to check for successful RDP connections. Once again, I told you RDP is common with ransomware providers. You want to review the Windows security log, SMB event logs, and any related logs that may identify significant authentication or access events. And you want to run Wireshark on the impacted server with a filter to identify IP addresses involved in activity writing or renaming of files. 
Now, of course, you have to conduct an examination of existing organization detection and prevention controls. You always want to do this after you've done containment. You want to look for evidence of precursor dropware malware. These are these advanced malware variants will often sell access to a network. Malicious actors drop manually deployed ransomware variants on a network to obfuscate their post-compromise activity. Care must be taken to identify such dropware malware before rebuilding from backups. And you want to conduct an analysis to identify inside and outside persistence mechanism. Once an attacker gets a foothold into the environment, they want to have persistence. That way, if you do de detect that their rogue account or their back door, they can come in a different manner. They input those malware implants on the internal network or a variety of living off the land style modifications. If you're not familiar with living off the land, it's the use of commercial I'm sorry, it's the use of the binaries and tools that are already on that system, but they can be trojanized. You can use of commercial penetration tools like Cobalt Strike and PS tool utility suites, such as PS Exec. I see PS Exec a lot. To remotely install and control malware and gather information regarding or performing remote management. PowerShell. Now, I think we covered a lot today. I think we covered a lot of what is ransomware, what can you expect, what threat actors are doing, and then what are some of those best controls to go ahead and mitigate that. I think it's important to always understand what a threat actors are modifying in an environment, where are they moving lateral, and what's your best practices to mitigate that. I want to thank everybody for joining me today on this episode, really concentrating on ransomware and what's its impact to small businesses. I look forward to our next episode. And in the meantime, stay secure. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.